Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. We'll get this thing started. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the new and improved Canon with Alex Goodwin, Director of Sales and Marketing for Vertice Oilfield Tools. Alex, welcome to the show. It's only Tuesday, but how's your week been so far? So far, so good. Monday's behind us. So right. uh, thanks uh, thanks for having me on, Justin. Yeah, appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day, obviously, with Vertice being a relatively new company. I know you probably wear a lot of hats and your days are you know crammed. So taking some time out of your busy day, especially at the beginning of the week, is much appreciated. So yeah, no looking problem. forward to having you. You're from Louisiana, right? I am. Yeah. Okay. Well, I always like to know, tell us about your favorite part of growing up in Louisiana and, and your fondest memory of a child. Because a lot of times when I ask that to people, it's far different than most people, you know, that live outside of Louisiana. So you got any good memories growing up in Louisiana? Yeah. I mean, growing up in Louisiana, it's pretty, pretty rural area. So uh, yeah. we were always outside, always doing, doing different things in the woods and things like that. So yeah. If I think about anything in my childhood, it was probably doing something back in the woods in a creek, fishing or something something like that. Yeah. And I didn't grow up in kind of the the real south south part of Louisiana. So was, okay. so there was some you know, some water, some you know, swampy areas, but it was a lot of woods, you know. Okay. So 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 I would say most of my time was just out in the woods, outside, cool. with a lot of land. So it's much different than being in Houston, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What part of Louisiana? A small town called Independence, Louisiana. It's about an hour north of New Orleans. Okay. Nice. Did you ever travel to New Orleans when you were younger? Or? Yeah, I mean, we would when we were little parents and stuff, but most, you know, we'd go to New Orleans quite a bit, like during during college and things like yeah. that, when, when it was, I guess, more, more stuff to do for adults and, and not so much kids. So. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. My wife and I got married in Lafayette. My wife's from Louisiana. Okay. And we got married March 5th of 2011, and it was during Mardi Gras. And so my family, first of all, never been to Southern United States. Second of all, never been to Louisiana, <laughs> which is a whole nother country. And third of all, had never been to Mardi Gras. So yeah, they, they live to tell about it and there was definitely some shirts off and, and some good partying happening during that time. And so, yeah, yeah for people, you know, and, and I've had people from Louisiana on here before and it's always funny just to talk about the, you know, the, you know, Mardi Gras and kind of the culture down there. It's certainly unique and it's almost like its own little country. Yeah. So, it, it really is. The culture is, is, is like none other, you know, it's yeah. kind of funny with your last name. I bet you get confused. People think you're, yeah. you're from Louisiana. Right? right. So for people out there who probably don't know how to pronounce it, it's Gautier and, or down here, a lot of people say Goche. Goche, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, there's an RV store heading when you head in to towards Lafayette, there, Goche right. RV or something like that. And people always ask me either if I'm related to them or, you know, one of the other few Goches that run around Lafayette, but not that I know of. So I'm from Canada, which is funny because my wife is from Lafayette. And so she's got the, you know, the Cajun last uh-huh. name, or I've got the Cajun last name, but she's the one from Louisiana. So it, it kind of worked out good. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. But I tell you, whenever I go over to her grandparents or, you know, any relatives over there, they embrace me and they bring me in. And it's such a family and, and just, you know, such a unique culture where everyone gets together. Everyone's warm and loving. And, and it really puts uh you know southern hospitality to a whole nother level so again i you know i like i like everything about louisiana i don't know if i could live there but i certainly like visiting (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a great place to visit. Like you said, the, the people are, are world class. Uh, yeah. Not, there's not too many people you talk to that don't enjoy going there. I've heard the same thing. Don't don't know if you can live there because it's just a different different place, uh, sure. especially if you're not from there. Yeah. I definitely will. You know, I've been in Houston for a long time now, but definitely want to get back there at some point. Yeah. But, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people that are in Houston, it's more around the kind of the, the opportunity for jobs are, are not course. quite the same so yeah so a lot, a lot of people from louisiana move out and come to houston of course get in the oil field yeah so how does a guy like yourself from louisiana not weigh 250 pounds like whenever <laughs> i go there i feel like i gain 10 pounds like you're a lean mean fighting machine man what did you what how'd you do that i, mean, I think it's just genetics i mean yeah. I, I i work out i exercise but not enough to to burn off all the calories that, that, <laughs> I, that i eat in the fried foods and stuff oh, like that oh man yeah <laughs> it's funny you say that i didn't realize it until coming to houston that that you know, people from Louisiana they eat mostly fried foods, Cajun, you know, Cajun food, right? Yeah. It was a, a guy I was working with at the time that we went to a, a shrimp bowl or a fried fish, you know, fish fry at an old field event. Yeah. And he turns to me and goes, "Is there anything here that's not fried?" And I just automatically assume, "Yeah, surely there's something here that's not fried." And we go and look around, and he was from a different country. And I, okay, after we went through all this Louisiana food, we realized that yeah, there's there's everything here is fried. You know, so that, that's when it <laughs> yeah. clicked. Like, uh, you know, may, maybe maybe we do have a problem with with our fried food but yeah but i love it and i i still eat like i live i still live there but nice. uh, Good for you. i think it's just strictly strictly genetics that keep keep me slim so nice. uh, i'm sure it'll catch up to me at some point <laughs> well whatever you're doing it's working man so you went to lsu are you a football fan i am yeah yeah how are the tigers going to be this year I think pretty good. I mean, we got a tough schedule. We, we always have a tough schedule, but this year, especially a really tough schedule. So it could go, it could go a lot of different ways. I think, I think, you know, 10 win season is probably achievable, Yeah. but there's a lot of excitement that's going into the season, especially a lot of people in Houston with UT. We, we play them the second week of the season. So that's right. I know so many people that are planning to go out there for that game. So I'm looking forward to it. I'll be there as well. Nice. That'll be a good one. Well, hopefully the first one you can get a win under your belt. I think it's Georgia Southern, right? Is yeah. the first one. Yeah. So I would assume that's going to be a W for you guys. Should be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If it's not, there's going to be a, <laughs> there's going to be a, lot, a lot of mad people in Baton Rouge. So. <laughs> yeah. But what do you think of Joe Burrows? I, I was actually looking at, I was saw in Sports Center there that he, he had a little minor shoulder injury, but I think he'll be good to go. Is he, you think he'll be a stud this year or what? Yeah, I mean, he, he really he really played really well last year. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's been, he was very consistent. I mean, he's just all around, all around a good top level quarterback, and to get him as a transfer, yeah, was huge. And, Where did he uh, come from? He came from, I think it's, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of the college right now. It's a, one of those colleges up north, and okay, so it's kind of I'm blanking on it right now, but no worries. Uh, yeah yeah cool well i'm a big football fan growing up in canada you know i watch cfl but we still get you know the the odd primetime game with the you know nfl and we were able to watch college football too so i have a huge appreciation for it. grew up playing and so uh anyway i thought i'd throw that out there so but before we dive into your story and about you know vertice you made a pretty interesting comment on LinkedIn about there was an article in Oil and Gas Journal about the misleading stats on the Permian Basin. And really, without getting into the weeds, you know, I found it pretty interesting and would like to hear your thoughts on, you know, why in general, why you think operators are sort of underreporting frac activity by a pretty significant amount. Is that something that you kind of follow? Because, I mean, you're on the completion side of it. Is it can you shine some light on your thoughts with that or? Yeah, that was a report that came out from like a market research company that kind of put that information out there. And it's it was very interesting to think about. I mean, I think you hear a lot about the duck count increasing month over month, and especially since this time last year. So, you know, if a lot of the sentiment in the industry was, well, we have this huge duck count that potentially we can stop drilling and have, you know, six months worth of inventory to complete wells and your production wouldn't fall off. But right. So to say that things are underreported, that, that could, could definitely shake that up. 
since that report came out, I know there's been a few people come out and say it's really just due to lag and we're, we're having, we're still increasing duck count, but it's, it's all about when the well was drilled mm-hmm. and when it was actually reported into frack focus and the EIA reports and things like that. So it's kind of hard to say if it's really underreported or if it's just a lag. So, so there's sure. some, some conflicting evidence there, but but I think the, the the moral of the of the whole issue was: Do we have the amount of inventory that we that we think we have? And if we do decrease our our drilling mm-hmm. over time, will, will we be able to sustain production? And and if you can't, then and then things adjust, and the oil price will quickly start to start to increase. And then people may have to pick up rigs, or or people will start picking up rigs, things right. like that. So it could have an impact depending on you know how you view the data and how, and and what you what you believe it to be. So so th- that's why I made that comment. And there's been a lot of a lot of talk around it. I was listening to a podcast earlier today where we were talking about how how these numbers get reported and things like that. So mm. uh, so there's a lot of people looking at it. I think it's a very important important piece of, of the puzzle for unconventionals, for sure. Absolutely, and it helps operators you know plan their business accordingly because there's just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility right now. And you know it's you see a lot of folks, oh, you know, we need to cut rigs and you know, we need to let things balance out. And, but then in the meantime, you still have, you know, the odd operator adding rigs and you've got all this consolidation that's, you know, hopefully helping out. So, and yeah, again, just, just kind of interested to hear your thoughts on it. And a lot of the stuff that you add on LinkedIn, that's, you know, it, it promotes, you know, good conversation. So I was certainly interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Before we get going, let's take a quick break. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor and take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Also, if you feel like you have a great story or just an idea or you have any questions, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm always willing to chat. So Alex, before we get going into more of the technical stuff, what was life like before, you know, before getting into the oil field? Did you, you know, you high school, did you go right into school and then got out and, and started working oil field? Or was there anything in between that you decided to jump into? Yeah, so I mean, high school. So I grew up in a small town, Louisiana, about about 2,000 people. So it's a really small town. And, uh, mm-hmm. My brother and I, when we graduated high school, we both decided to to kind of get get out of the small town and see kind of the big city, which for us was was Baton Rouge when we went to LSU. So we went straight from high school to LSU. Nice, you know, going to a school of almost you know thirty thousand uh, people <laughs> it was a huge culture shock. Just to, <laughs> I bet you know coming from a small town, but enjoyed it. Had had, a, had enjoyed my time there. Met a lot of lifelong friends there that I wouldn't have met in a small town to two thousand people. So before for the oil field, I went to school, graduated, and actually stayed stuck around Louisiana for a little bit. And Louisiana is oil field like around you know Lafayette, New Iberia, those those places, Cameron. Mm-hmm. But where I grew up, it's more petrochemical. So okay, you know my family, my parents, or my friends' parents, and you know most of those were centered around you know the chemical plants and the refineries and, and stuff like that. So I actually started out the petrochemical space for for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, before actually getting into upstream upstream oil and gas, so it was a good good segue into into the oil field. I got gotcha. you. And correct me if I'm wrong. You ended up getting your MBA as well, right? I did, yeah. From, okay. From LSU, so I, so I spent two years working full time, and then went back and did MBA at LSU. Cool. What made you decide to do MBA? And, and the reason I ask is because I have some friends that you know have a few years under their belt, and they're looking to either get executive MBAs. Actually, a couple of my buddies are going the executive MBA level. One of my best friends lives up in Denver. His fiance is getting her MBA. And, you know, there's always that like, you know, is, is the juice worth the squeeze? So what would you say, you know, was was the MBA worth it? Are you seeing the value? And what would you tell, you know, young listeners out there that may, may be contemplating going down that route? Sure. So I think MBA is valuable. I think the biggest factor of the value that you get out of it is the amount of work experience you have between your undergrad and, and your MBA. 
So for me, it was only two years. I wanted that to be longer. But when I went back was 2008, 2009, which was pretty tough economic times. And I always knew I wanted to get back. And I took that time as a really good time to go back full time, get that that degree under under my belt. And then hopefully after that, the economy would recover. So, so that was kind of the factor that played into me doing it then. Okay. But, but had I, you know, had I done it over, you know, maybe I'd have done like 10 years in between. Because I think it's just valuable in the sense that once you see all the things that you do in a full-time role in different industries and different positions, whenever you go and do the MBA, you can apply those things to, to the same things you're doing in your office life or you're doing your work life. And you can pl- apply them right away. And it, it really makes a lot of sense. And even with just two years under my belt, a lot of it made sense compared to some of my peers that were just straight straight through from undergrad to, to grad school. So, so I think I think the biggest value is how much time and, and I don't I don't know that there's a certain number that of years you need to do that. That's probably for every individual to figure out, but sure. I think the more the better. And then once you finish that, you should definitely apply that learning to to either do something not necessarily different, but a different type of role, stretch yourself, things like that and really apply apply the stuff that you you learned as recent as possible that way you don't you know forget it because it's just it's it's school so you always you, you know, after years go by you forget some of the some of the really important stuff you may have learned you know of course yeah and did you have a company help pay for that or did you take it upon yourself well I took it upon myself I wanted to and so that was 2008 there I was try- at that time I was actually trying to switch switch jobs and oh, okay. it just wasn't happening the economy it was it was in the dumps and sure. there wasn't too many jobs out there so that's what I would have preferred is had a company help, but I was fortunate enough in undergrad. I didn't, I came out debt free. And so, and so That's I, awesome. uh, yeah, thank you. I decided that, uh, you know, I can, I can take on some debt and fund my MBA. It's, you know, I, it, it should, it should pan out, should be worth it. And nice. uh, so, so I, so I did it on my own for that. Yeah. Good for you. The initiative obviously paid off and, you know, now you're, you know, you're, you've got a pretty good role at your company, which I want to talk about. But before we do, tell us a little bit about your journey in the upstream world. I mean, you've got a pretty solid resume that covers everything from sales, product champion, global account manager, to now, you know, a director at your current company. So yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Because I mean, you've worked for, I think, Neighbors and Weatherford and mm-hmm. a few other ones. So yeah, what was the story there? Yeah, so my oil field career started at, at Weatherford. I started out there and was was went into kind of a sales business development role. But to get into upstream oil and gas, you have to you have to learn you know the field side of it. So so yeah. start started out learning some some field. It was kind of like off and on, you know, catch a few jobs here, catch a few jobs there, do some stuff in the office, do some training, things like that. So I started out there. One of the really cool things that I really valued was early on. I got I got the opportunity to start out doing offshore work, nice. which was you know very at that time you know going from small town Louisiana to spending you know weeks offshore, sometimes even a month. It was really cool, very highly technical work. Saw a lot of really you know really really good things out there from from drilling completions, things like that. So that was a, a really cool, cool way to start. And, yep. and so once you got that, once I got that field experience, then it was really easy to kind of just grow from there in a sales role. Then you you knew more about the tools that you were talking about that some of the people that haven't been in the field in 10, 15 years. So, so I was able to kind of grow and stretch myself into product line roles and then all the way up to to like a global SME for a particular pro- product line. And, and I was able to do that pretty quickly. And it just, it really just came down to the field experience that that I got and just absorbed everything that I could. Very cool. Um, so so that was kind of how I how I kind of kicked things off in the oil field and what really set me up to to kind of grow within that organization. Mm-hmm. And then I spent a, a bit of time at, at Neighbors Drilling as a global account manager. 
basically managing rig contracts for some lower 48 customers that we had. Nice. If, you know, I had always been on the oilfield service, not the drilling contractor side. So that was a very interesting role. You know, as far as negotiations, that's probably one of the the most heated type of negotiation in the oil field is, is negotiating rig contracts. So that was a really, a really good learning experience. Got to learn a lot. Got to work with a lot of great people there. Cool. And did that. And then and that brought me to where I'm at now with a startup completion tools company called Vertice. Yeah. So tell us about Vertice and what you guys offer, some of the sort of the unique things that you guys bring to the bring to the marketplace. Because I've heard a little bit about them. I, I checked it out, you know, as much as I could on, on the internet, but I'd love to hear more about it and, and how you ended up making that, you know, transition. Because there's a leap of faith there, obviously. You know, a lot of the little startups right now are, you know, some are doing good and, you know, obviously others are are very challenged just you know by way of it's a tight margin environment right now at least it is in in the sort of the stuff that i deal with you know we're kind of in the the downturn hangover so yeah anyway i'll let you kind of talk a little bit about vertice and go from there yeah so vertice old tools we're a a startup downhole completion tools so so we're we're focusing on everything from frack plugs frack sleeves some refrack tools toe sleeves even some case and flotation devices. Okay. Uh, so, so we're we're building out the company to be a full service downhole completion tools company, and our focus is you know very niche and customer focused solutions. So, not you know we're not trying to go make a me too tool that company X has and or company Y has and just make a similar product. So, our focus is just looking at specific pain points that you know operators are having with their completions and designing tools and, and equipment around that of how, how we can solve those solve those challenges and, and do it. Can we do it in a, in a better way than what's out there? Or can we do it in a completely different way? So we have mm. some, some really innovative ideas, some, some kind of better mousetraps, tra- mouse if you will. So uh, yeah. that's kind of our focus. And, you know, being a startup and being a very a small, lean and nimble organization, we can quickly identify those and, and execute on them uh, pretty quickly. You know, taking a tool that, you know, a customer told, like say a customer told me today and we think it's valuable enough and they and they think it's a good solution for them we can quickly execute on that and that's something just startups in general have the ability to execute on a bit better than say some of the big the big four big three service companies might have so that that's that's a really exciting piece of it yeah so that's kind of our that's kind of our mantra right now what we're what we're focused on what we're trying to do and so far so good you know i have a couple examples of that where we're doing that so it's been it's been a good journey Thus Very far, cool. yeah. Okay, so what made you decide to take that jump? Because I mean, you had a pretty good position at where you at, where you were at, and I mean, obviously the opportunity presented itself, and I'm sure you outrated, you know, risk versus reward, and and here you are wearing the Vertice Oil Tool shirt. So you made the jump, but like you know, because a lot of people out there, you know, they're not 100 percent satisfied of where they're at, or you know, maybe they're not seeing as much you know fulfillment at their current roles. But you know, what what made you decide to go down that road? Yeah, so my previous role was at, at Neighbors, and, and that organization was great. I had a great boss, had a bunch of great people I was working with. So there wasn't any there wasn't any motivator to hey, I, I'm not happy what I'm doing, or I need to make a change. That 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 really wasn't it. I really liked the role I was doing, and I learned learned quite a bit. But just kind of by really by chance, a friend of a, a friend introduced me to one of our founders, and you know, just kind of started started talking, and and the opportunity was kind of one that that got me back to my roots of taking new technology and you know starting the R and D phase and uh, deploying it all the way to the field. Mm. So that was pretty exciting. And then the startup aspect of it, I'd only been a part of you know very large service and drilling contractors. So that piece of it, you know, really enticed me like, hey, you can go over there and make a quick impact and you can do things very quick and, and execute. But you're right, there is that risk reward piece of it. So, you know, I'm married, I've been married almost coming up on three years coming this March, but uh, 
or, or this coming up March. And we don't have kids. So, you know, it was one of those things where maybe this is the only time where with a clear conscience, my wife works as well. Yeah. She has a full-time job. And so the, maybe this is the only time where with a clear conscience, I can say, yeah, I'm going to take a step out on this limb and give him my, give him my all and, and hope that it works out for the best. And if it doesn't, you know, I'd, I'm not going to be, you know, slumming it or anything like that. My wife still has <laughs> yeah. a job and I feel like I could bounce back if it didn't work out. But so, so that was kind of the things that, that I weighed. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things about taking an opportunity like this, you, you get exposed to a lot of different, a lot of different circles, a lot of different types of people. So we're private equity backed. Okay. Um, so that's not anything I was ever exposed to before. So, sure. so, so, you know, routinely speaking to those, those guys in our private equity backers and other other private equities, other startups that are backed by them. So, so you really kind of have this like new circle of people. So I felt like, you know, that exposure, you know, can lead you to other, other things down the road, but after, you know, after Vertice or whatever could happen next. Right. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, when I put all those things together and said, you know, the, the risk is, is actually much lower than, than I, than I actually thought and the reward could work out really well. So, so that was kind of some of the things I can imagine if, I had three or four kids um, <laughs> and, and the wife was staying at home and our only income was, was making sure this worked out. You know, that would be a, a much riskier thing, but doesn't mean it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so for me, that was the, you know, the way I evaluated and, and just, I kind of just thought, you know, I don't want to kick myself in five years and, and wish I had done it now and right. then want to do it later. And then I have this different challenges or different things to worry about. So, so that that's kind of how I ended up taking the, the leap, and and it's been great so far. We we've really started to started to grow, started to get a, yeah, get some things going. We have mm-hmm. you know get, get customers, and we have a few customers now. So so all everything's worked out so awesome. far so good. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, what would you say some of the biggest challenges are for a start, startup like yourselves? I mean, is it you know are you guys like market share driven to where it's challenging because you know it's price competitive or I mean you mentioned you've got some unique technology or you're kind of fit for purpose if you see a problem you guys are nimble enough to create solutions and deliver probably in, you know half the time that maybe your competitors are. But again, like where do you see the biggest challenge right now and especially in this environment are for for folks like yourself? Yeah, the biggest challenge for startups, I guess, is, you know, you're for, let's say, downhole completion tools or downhole tools or oilfield service in general, specifically downhole. I mean, anytime you put tool downhole, there's there's some significant risk. You know, you can you can damage a well, you could cost the operator, you know, you know, uh, thousands of dollars of money if your, your equipment doesn't work. So so being a startup, you don't really have that name, that brand recognition. They don't really know who you are. So that's a, a huge challenge. And I experienced that in a big company level when we were doing some offshore stuff because it's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars talking about wells. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to land, even though it's, you know, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten million dollars, whatever well, it's still still a significant cost that you could potentially cost them. So so that that's the biggest challenge for for us as a startup is the brand recognition. That they really have to know you, understand what you do, believe in you, trust you. Right. So that's the biggest. The other one would be so we're we're able to, like I said, be pretty nimble and react pretty quickly. But you know, we're we're a small group, so if we have too many projects going on, we're really tapped out on resources, tapped out on, on engineering horsepower. So we have to prioritize mm-hmm. uh, versus, you know, say a big, one of the big three service companies before they may, you know, they can just assign, you know, some engineers that have been working on some other project and they, and they, they can have the engineering horsepower. Will, will it get, get done as quick? I, I don't know, but, but they have the resources. So, yeah. so for us, those are, those are probably the two, two biggest challenges and, and managing, you know, managing the resources 
and then getting the word out and, you know, f- getting trusted clients, trusted in, you know, operators, you know, that, that believe in what we're doing and, and trust the, what, the product that we're putting out. Yeah. So that's, that's really, you know, that's really our goal is to, to do just that, you know? Right. Right. You mentioned technology a little bit earlier. And so I'm always curious if folks like yourself that have been, you know, in the completions or even drilling world for a long time, what have you seen the biggest advancement in completions technology has been, you know, ever since say the downturn, because the downturn really forced people to become efficient, utilize new technology, doing more for less essentially. Yeah. So is there anything that really comes to mind and whether it's with Vertice or not, but just, just overall, is there anything that's kind of changed the game with downhole tools over the last few years? Yeah, I guess just just overall, it's the the efficiency. So how quick, how efficient you can do things. So the so the amount of stages that they're doing a day, doing doing a day, and that's that's made up for a whole lot of different reasons. You know, the the pad drilling, they they can they can you can do multiple wells on a pad, frack multiple wells on a pad. You have all the surface surface equipment that's optimizing things. You have different types of, of sand and propping that they're pumping now. The HF, the friction re- reducers, things like that. So, so when you you know everything in that space, for as far as efficiency goes, has gotten better over time, and especially during the downturn, and, and it had to. And people were, you know, instead of you know importing sand from Wisconsin, they're they're getting out of their backyard and it's doing just as good. I mean, yeah. just just little things like that, and you add all those up, and you become become very efficient and and it's it's a bit of a scale game too that's why you see some of the majors that are doing really well in in unconventionals is is they can scale their operations and do it a lot more wells and and things like that so so i I think the biggest innovation is just being able to be more efficient by adding the sum of all those parts up together Mm -hmm. um, to do that at least you know as far as the completions and and drilling i mean there's a to get down to specific tools, there's there's all kinds of different examples and things like that. But but we always always tend to get you know drill the wells faster and complete them faster, and and that that's a good thing, you know. But those those cycle times are coming down, you know, every year, you know? right? So so that's been significant increase, you know, since the downturn. With the increase in efficiencies, I mean, you see this on the drilling side. Is they're able to drill just as many wells with less rigs? Is that something similar you're seeing on the completion side? Is you're be able to complete? You know more well so essentially the demand for frat crews and, and just ultimately horsepower is is less is that sort of a thing that's happening or yeah i, I think i think it is it's kind of you know it's kind of hard to say without being too ingrained with the operators to to know all their numbers but sure uh, but it is i think it's probably more just my experience from from the drilling side it's more significant on the drilling side i mean you know Wells in South Texas were, were taking, you know, 15 to 20 days, and now some are like 7 to 12, some are <laughs> even lowest, you know, 5 or 6, you know. Yeah. Uh, so they've made some significant significant improvements. On the completion side, you still have to to run plugs down to a certain depth and set them and, and, and frack them. So it's they have made some significant improvements in efficiencies with just with those cycle times, but I think a lot of it's, it's just mostly around like surface equipment and you know manipulating valves and things like that that have created some some really good efficiencies. But I would say the the cycle times have really come down more on the drone side, some okay. on the completion side. Interesting. Um, but it's getting, I mean, like I said, it continues to get better and better and people come up with new ways of fracking these wells. So Yeah, yeah. With regards to, like right now, you probably hear a lot of the big buzzwords like data and AI and digitalization. Is that something that you guys utilize much at all in, in your line of business? Is, is that, that kind of stuff? Or is it more, you know, or is it more just looking at, you know, data coming in and you analyzing it, you know, manually 
you know, kind of traditionally, is that something that you guys are doing much of? Or? Yeah. So, so I guess you're kind of talking about the big data analytics, AI type stuff. We don't offer any of those services or, or, or do anything to that regard. More just a hardware, hardware company, downhole tool company, but we, gotcha. we are doing some things, you know, as far as dashboards and how we track, you know, our performance, because, you know, the operator is going to track it, but they're going to do it according to their metrics and, and you kind of have to do the same thing. So, it's a little tough because we're not always plugged in, especially being a startup and always plugged into their their feeds and things like that. Right. But no, so our our focus is more the more the hardware and more the actual the, the iron and, and things that are going into the ground. Sure. Yeah. No, I always like to ask that question because some companies do and some companies don't. And again, I'm just a small drilling guy, so sometimes when you know I interview folks from different walks of oil field, I always like to see you know who's using what because it's we're evolving at such a rapid rate, and so it's always interesting to hear how. People either, you know, gathering data, capturing it, delivering it, organizing it, you know, and stuff like that. So it always piques my interest. One question I had specifically for you is, you know, you know, you had your, you was a bachelor of science from mm-hmm. LSU. Yeah. And then, you know, with the MBA, what made you stay on the service side versus going to the operator side? Because a lot of times folks like yourself who, you know, have the education, the experience, you ultimately end up on the operator side. So, but you, you've managed to stay away from that. Is there any particular reason or? Yeah, I guess, yeah, there is a, I look at the, so the operator side is, is a great side to be on. My brother, I have a twin brother that works at the Chevron and he's, uh, okay. he's on the operator side, a drilling, drilling engineer, mostly, most of his career. And it's a great side to be on. You know, the way I look at it, I mean, the early on in your career, throughout your career that, you know, even the compensation is really good on the operator side versus the service side. But Service side always intrigued me is because, you know, every day you wake up, it's it's a completely different day. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might be in West Texas one day, and, you know, next day you can be in Oklahoma and it just changes. I mean, you're, you know, at the, you know, the call of whatever operator needs are that day and each day in the morning and the afternoon is totally different. So it was always kind of fast paced and, and just a lot of different things. You got a lot of balls in the air. And that that's kind of was something that I, I really enjoyed and really liked. I mean, when I was at Weatherford, I was just traveling all over the world, talking to different, you know, drilling completions groups about new technology. So, cool. so I just, uh, I just like kind of the variety of different things happening. And also, and I feel like in, in a service company, I've never worked in operation, so I can't speak too much for this, but I always felt in a service company, you always had, you know, a, a certain path that you could, if you had good ideas or you had initiative, you have certain things, you could really make an impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the, the day, if you solved the customer's problem or you did did a good job with that customer, you were going to continue doing work and, and operate, you know, service companies live by, you know, that rig or that frack spread. Yeah. Uh, so it's super, super important, important. So I, so I, you know, you can get lost in some of these big service companies, but I just felt like if you provide the the value and, and you worked hard, you did the right things, you know, you can kind of kind of make your own way through it. So so that was the reason why I've I've kind of stayed on the service side. Yeah. Not to say I would never switch over to, to the operator side, but that's kind of my take on it. If you had if you had my brother here, you'd probably have a totally opposite <laughs> take. But yeah, it would have been neat to have you and your brother here. I didn't know you had a twin brother. So yeah, what's yeah. his name? Emil. Emil. Emil okay. good one, yeah. F- okay. Funny story about that is he'll he'll never let me live this live this down. <laughs> so as a as an old field service salesperson, yeah. he was actually my very first sale. Oh, no way. Believe it or not. It was nice. totally by accident and it didn't really think it would happen this way. But shortly after I joined Weatherford, I was in the field doing stuff. And my brother was with a consulting company at that time and drilling a well up in Pennsylvania. And he calls me and he asked me for this tool. And it was a very kind of obscure type tool that really wasn't like off the shelf or anything like that. And and I was so new that I didn't even know what he was talking about. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, I don't know. Let me, let me ask around. So I ended up asking around and 
And that that time, that was a particular product line that was new to the company, and really no one in you know that, that was one of the challenges of big companies. They sell so many things that not everybody knows what they sell, right? So I yeah. kind of did this little thing back and forth with it. several several people within the organization. Do we sell this? Do we sell this? And finally, I got connected to the right person in the organization, and they had it. And my brother was in a bind. He was like, just ship it as soon as possible, right? So just kind of just by accident, you know, my first sale was with was with my brother. No but uh, it wasn't not, not that he was trying to do me any favors because he literally called every other service company before he called me, <laughs> and nobody had it. So Hey, bro's always got his back. Yeah, that's right. So he'll, he'll never let me live that down, but uh, <laughs> I, I will say, he, so he was a drilling engineer and this particular tool was, a, it was called a, an under-reamer. Yeah. He got casing stuck about, I think like 300 feet from surface. So oh, I give him a hard time saying, well, who planned that well? And, and that was yeah, him. So, yeah, so, yeah. so I kind of helped him out probably more <laughs> than he, he thinks he helped me out. So Dude, that is pretty, that's a neat story. Hey, yeah, yeah. that's good. So I was going to actually ask you what that tool was, but, and so he's, you know, he, he's at Chevron now. Is he on the drilling side too? Yeah. He, I think he just, I'm not really sure what he's doing now, but he's more like an asset business, asset engineer type role. So evaluating, planning and things like that. So cool. Cool. Have you ever sold anything to him since then? No, actually, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really had the opportunity to. And, and you know, once, once you get busy, you know, I don't want to go and ask my brother for work. And, and, yeah. and he, that was before he was at Chevron. So Chevron, he, I think he even has to, like, disclose that his brother works for a service company and things like that. Of course, but, yeah. But so, so it would probably be different. And he probably wouldn't be in the equation if I did sell something to Chevron that, that was in his group. But uh, yeah. But no, not not no, since. No. Uh, I'll hold that card for when I really need it. You know? Exactly. No, that's uh, that's too funny, man. That's neat. That, yeah, that would have been hilarious to have you guys sit here and tell your your own story. And you say you never work. You can never work for, or you haven't worked for an operator. Hell, you could you know throw his name tag on and walk in there, and no one would probably ever notice until you started talking. Like, wait a minute. That's that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, oh man, I can't tell you the the amount of encounters I've had with people like his coworkers or salespeople that are calling on him. Oh yeah, and, and he's had the same thing, vice versa. Be, being in the same industry. And we know well, we run into a lot of the same people. It gets gets pretty pretty confusing for yeah. sure. <laughs> you can we, have some some vendors entertaining you, and they wouldn't even know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that doesn't happen though. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Oh, that's too funny. Well, yeah. um, so before we close out, I always, I always have a couple personal questions to ask. Do you have any daily routines or habits that you're that kind of keep you focused and motivated to keep going? And especially now, you know, you've got this the startup. I'm sure you go to bed thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You know, what kind of keeps you grounded and focused to keep grinding every day? Well, you know, being on the service side, every day is different. It's kind of hard to, to stick to the same routines. I, I wish I had a lot more. I think for me, it's just being very task, task oriented. So mm-hmm. I'm a big, big to, to do list guy. So the end of the day, make sure I have a to-do list for tomorrow. At the beginning of that day, make sure make sure I've added everything I needed. So, so I mean that's I mean that's a kind of a simple one. I'm sure a lot of people do it, but that kind of that kind of keeps me keeps me focused, keeps me going down the that, that path. Or else, you know, you'll get a phone call that that you need to go do this or this needs to happen in the next hour, and then that whole you know all, everything you th- you were thinking about doing or, or needed to get done that day is kind of out the window unless you keep it very, you know, very organized and, and yep. written in, in front of you. And, I, and I'm, I like to write write it down and actually scratch it off. Occasionally, I'll, I'll do it digitally on my phone, but mm-hmm. I'd rather have it there. That way I can look at it and, you know, take notes and things like that. So so I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that I do every single day and, yeah. and it was keeps me focused. I mean, I, I try to, you know, outside of work, try to stay active, but that that uh, doesn't always happen, especially I travel a good bit now. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to do, but uh, I hear you. Yeah, there's just a couple of things that, that I try to do. Yeah, no, that's good. It's interesting. You say writing things down. I'm a huge you know note taker and, 
a task writer. And I feel like if I can number it and scratch it off, it's a little more real to me if, if I can do that. And so, you know, maybe it's just the old school mentality. I know nowadays, I don't think kids even know how to write their name and, in, in, you know, cursive writing, let alone, <laughs> you know, writing a task list, except for if it's on their phones. But, you know, I'll even try to write task, li- task lists on my phone. And it, there's something different about writing it than then typing it and, you know, hitting the check mark that you did it. So I can identify with you there for sure. Is there something about you that not many people know about or any good hidden secrets that you'd like to unleash to the podcast world? It doesn't have to be explicit, but just something unique that maybe no one, that, that people who know you may not know about? Yeah, I guess, I guess the only thing that comes, comes to mind, it, it's not a well-kept secret or anything like that, but it's not something that I just go around sharing. But uh, sure. I recently just got involved with Big Brother's Big Sister, being a, a big brother. Awesome, man. Good uh, for you. It's something I've always wanted to do, and, and I've been doing it just over a year now. It's a great organization, so I, I really recommend anybody that wants to be a mentor to be a part of it. And it's been a very uh, rewarding experience, and, and I, I feel like I've had an impact on on my little brother. Wow! Uh, so that's something that probably not a lot of people know about. You know, even some of my friends, I don't even don't even share because it's not something something that comes up in conversation. But uh, sure. it's a great organization, so I recommend anybody joining it and being part of it. So I wouldn't mind if you if you don't mind explaining a little bit about how you got into that, what sort of drove that, and sort of like logistically how that works. I've heard about it but i've never really talked to anyone who's considered to be a big brother so how does that work so uh, well the way it works is they match you with a little brother and and they're i'm not sure the exact ages but i think it it can go always like seven to like 18 right okay and you get matched and they you they ask you your preference of what age ranges and things like that and and then they just kind of match you with somebody you you meet them you meet the, the family and then from there you just schedule twice a month the uh, outings with the with the, the little brother and you can really do anything whether just no go out to a restaurant to uh, go down to Galveston to Pleasure Pier go to a movie all these different things and what they encourage is you know try to do things that don't cost money because if if it's if it's costing you a lot of money you're gonna be less inclined to, to do things and do it as often yeah uh, but but they do it's fine to you know go to movies and things like that yeah so it's really about you know kind of enriching that that child's life and show them new things that they wouldn't be exposed to wow whether it's you know going to a museum or you know going and see a movie they would never get to see or things like that so so you try to mix it up try to do a lot of different things. So it's, uh, you know, the, the toughest part is just scheduling and just finding the right time, but I usually do it about twice a month. The reason why I got involved in it is, you know, growing up, I had a great childhood, a great family. Me and my brother, you know, you know, grew, grew up with, with some good parents. But the only, the only piece that uh, when we went the, to college, my, my parents, my parents didn't go to college. So their, their only criteria was like, go to college and get a degree, right? <laughs> yeah. And there wasn't any like, you know, hey, you should think you should do this, do that, just go get one, right? And so I, I kind of, you know, kind of part of this is like trying to guide, you know, a young kid, you know, where what they should do with their life and, and things beyond high school and, and things like that. So so that was kind of my idea of like maybe I can help someone at least show them different, you know, like we talk about my work and, you know, we, have, we, we plan to go down to the museum down in Galveston soon. Good for you, uh, man. So, so that, that's kind of what was the driving thing for me is like maybe I can kind of shape shape a kid and, and just – you know, kind of give them aspirations that maybe they, they wouldn't normally have. And so, so that was a real driving force for it. Good for you, man. That's, ex- I'm like, I'm really impressed with that actually. And then nowadays there's so many kids out there that, that need, 
even just a blip of of some sort of motivation or inspiration or or just to show them a little bit of love you know what i mean where otherwise in in certain areas that otherwise they may not so no my hat off to you alex that's really cool man i really appreciate you sharing that yeah so before we close out here i just want to take a moment to tell everyone about our upcoming events Hey guys, this is Alex, and here are the events on deck for September 2019. We are bringing Oil & Gas Tech Podcast to the Internet of Things Conference in Houston, Texas on September 16th through 17th. Joining us will be CEO Marty Sprintson of Vantique. You can register online at iotandoilandgas.com. The Midstream Networking Golf Tournament will be held on September 6, 2019 in Cyprus, Texas, and the dress, of course, is golf attire. The NOV Sporting Clays Tournament will be on September 20th, 2019 in Katy, Texas. Dress is casual. The Blockchain and Oil and Gas Conference is in Houston, Texas on September 18th through 19th. And the dress is business casual. That's all for September. Hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Thank you. I also want to mention the OKC Fin Feather and Fur, which will be happening Friday, October 11th at Heritage Place, Oklahoma City. It's relatively new for the Oklahoma region. So if you're interested, I would highly suggest going on the AADE website or hit up Courtney Strang with Inwell for more details. Also, anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Also, if you're looking to get in shape for back to school or fall, Anything coming up, vacation maybe, visit KTX Fit and Katie Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Everyone out there, thanks for listening to Oil & Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more info, hit up oilandgasonshore.com. Alex, thanks again for joining me today. If people are interested to hear more about Vertice or just have a, maybe a question on the completion side, what's the best way they can reach out to you or the company? They can reach out to me on LinkedIn. It would probably be the best way or go to our website. We have a, a couple email addresses there that they can submit questions or reach out. So the website's verticeoiltools.com. Okay. And I'm just on LinkedIn at, at Alex Goodwin. I'm on there pretty pretty regularly. So if anybody yeah. wants to reach out, ask any questions, you know, we're always looking for, for new operators to work with. So Perfect. So, Very cool. Well, again, appreciate your time. And everyone out there, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 